0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton.
1: From the campus at the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, celebrating reunion weekend, where alumni have gathered to reconnect and learn. This is a special presentation of of Mastering Innovation on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host Saika Choudhury, Executive Director of the Mac Institute for Innovation Management and a Professor of Management here at Wharton. We're normally live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, but today is our special reunion radio broadcast. Our show focuses on how established firms can remain innovative and handle disruption challenges, and we bring in executives, industry experts, and academics as our guests to provide insights from their experience and work with us. If you have any comments or questions during today's show, give us a call. The phone lines are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Today, we're going to catch up with two Wharton alumni who are visiting campus this weekend for their reunion and find out what interesting things they've been up to. Coming up in the second half of today's show, I'll be joined by Brian Fields, the vice president of Things to Do at Groupon. But now I'm thrilled to welcome Brendan Cahill, a 2008 Wharton MBA grad. Brendan is the founder and leader of Penguin Random House Labs that's the team that focuses on innovation in printed books for the publishing giant. Brennan, thank you so much for joining me here today. It's thank great you. to see you. It's great to be here. It's nice. We're of course old friends. We know each other from undergrad. You happened to be in my class when you were doing your <laughs> MBA, which is a nice touch and pleasant surprise. How does it feel, ba- feel to be back on campus?
0: Well, it's always great to be back on campus. And uh, I'm also uh, – I must serve as a board member for University of Pennsylvania Press, so I do have occasion to come back here a little more often. <laughs> but uh, it's great to see all my old colleagues and my old professors here. It's just uh, – it's it's always invigorating to be back at Wharton, especially as you're seeing what everybody's
1: up to. And one good thing is that you actually, at least now, live here in the area as well, right? How's that going? I do, I do. I uh, I live here, I work
0: in New York. Uh, I, as I explained to people, I, I can't really work remotely. You can't do innovation work really remotely. So, <laughs> um, but uh, because of life circumstances and family circumstances, it made sense for us to be here. So uh, so I, I do have the joy of being in the Philadelphia area and
1: in, enjoying the Eagles championship and, uh, in my hometown. No, that's great. I wanted to put in that plug also Because, you know, we're trying very hard to bring Amazon's uh, headquarters or second headquarters here as well. And some of us have worked on that pitch. And so uh, I want to make sure we tout the benefits of being here in this region, too. For sure. So tell us about your role and what your innovation lab that you created does. And how would you get here?
0: Sure. So... um, Uh, I joined Penguin Random House uh, a little over five years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was on the cusp of taking a job in uh, Comcast doing strategy development uh, after I'd left being a CEO of a startup. Um, In fact, I'd verbally accepted the offer. But before I signed the dotted line, I got introduced to uh, Marcus Dola, the uh, global CEO of of then Random House, which was on the cusp of um, uh, merging with Penguin, which was interestingly – The company that I worked at prior to business school when I was a book editor. So um, (laughs) we had a very interesting conversation that kind of went from being super informal to very serious and very formal um, in uh, lightning fast. And I wound up joining him. Uh, and there's, there's even more to that, which I know we're going to get into, but I wound up joining him doing strategy work for the first couple of years as we merged the two companies together, uh, doing everything from doing, uh, working on the global brand of Penguin Random House, bringing in the house of brands that is Random House with the, the unified, uh, uh, branded house of Penguin with the, the, the bird, the iconic bird and how do we handle that? Was that mean in terms of how the company operates? Lots of technology questions having been a, uh, technology, uh, software startup CEO, um, dealt a lot with the architecture of the company from a uh, API standpoint, CRM standpoint. Ultimately, that uh, evolved to a role where I began to uh, want to look at how we could use the technologies that we've been modernizing the company with mm-hmm. to create a strategic lever for new revenue opportunities. And that gestated this concept of, uh, of a labs concept, to be able to, to take a product development type of approach to be able to implement uh, innovation in a in a small way that could then be scaled, so small rapid fire tests, um, you know, uh, in- encountering um, and incorporating some uh, lean enterprise principles, some human centered design principles, as we were pivoting the company to become more consumer centric. Yeah. And uh, but finding ways that we could do things that were fast to market. In the first year, I brought in the CTO for my startup, Kyle Gerard. Um, It was a fantastic business mind and product mind in addition to being a a, a phenomenal engineer. Um, And then we sort of built a a very small, fast-moving team together where we could uh, be a force multiplier joining with different pieces of the company to create rapid, particularly consumer-focused prototypes in the first year. Now, as we've moved in from the second year into the third year – we're really looking to, to leverage those into new types of partnerships that then have bigger market meaning in a, in a very disrupted marketplace.
1: Can you give us an example of a specific product or service and how you've done that?
0: Sure, of course. Um, so, uh, for example, we did a lot of uh, work in direct-to-consumer retail. So sort we're of doing experiments about retail out of a traditional store type of context. Mm-hmm. How do people buy books? How would they discover books? Um, we uh, worked with Shopify to develop um, – build off of their platform uh, of APIs to, to create card technologies that could be both mobile checkout as well as online checkout. Mm-hmm. And that powered experiments that we did with uh, a pop-up store in Puerto Rico that we enabled uh, with a local partner that then became a permanent store they wound up taking over. Uh, we did uh, direct consumer sales at Comic-Cons um, where we were able to then gather consumer information because we were using uh, mobile technologies that we had heretofore not had. Um, we did direct-to-consumer um, experiments around products, including with HBO's Game of Thrones, where we mm-hmm. created a, uh, a collectible box uh, with a collectible book and, and, other, and other items uh, for George R. R. Martin fans um, that we both took online orders as well as in-person orders at Comic-Cons with using those technologies – and, um, and that just allowed us to, to see how consumers wanted to uh, acquire, discover, talk about books, experience books. And now we're able to, to use those as conversation pieces as well as now knowledge points that we can, bring, we can bring to our retail and other partners to enable their businesses to, to grow and evolve um, in a very rapidly changing 21st century retail environment.
1: Okay, this is extremely fascinating to me. And the reason is that we often hear about how the print and physical medium and brick and mortar is on its decline, we see a lot of doomsday predictions, and there have been trends in that direction, because everything seems to be going digital you're actually looking to buck that trend and to really challenge that and counter that. And it's really interesting because if we look at someone like Amazon, too, with their purchase of Whole Foods or their creation of these stores, I recently saw one in New York as well in a very prominent uh, mall location, we're seeing a little bit of a, a, a movement towards maybe having some physical presence as well or physical you know, uh, products, even when they could go online or go digital in some form. How do you see that evolving, and um, wh- what's your prediction about what will happen there? Is this sustainable, or is this a little something that we try and keep on hang the, on to?
0: This is a very meta question, so I'm going to sort yeah. of step back and and uh, because we're here are Wharton, I'm going to be a little frameworky for a moment. So, <laughs> great, great. So, um, so I think the the first piece of, of this is it's 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 this what we're experiencing is far beyond Amazon. And Barbara Kahn gave a, a talk yesterday about uh, the future of retail yeah. as part of our Wharton reunion um, slide. And, and it was I actually took pictures of those slides, sent them to my team on Slack and, and really sort of t- said, like, hey, this is this is what we're doing. Yeah. Um, and uh, but even at a more metal level beyond retail, it's we're in this age of disruption. Yeah, this is an age of disruption. And, you know, Mark Andreessen talks about um, software is eating the world. Um, we're seeing uh, S and P tenure. There's been studies that, that have that have come out about how we've gone from you know 1965. The average tenure of an S and P company was 33 years. Now um, you know we're coming down to about 14 years in S and P, and it's just mm-hmm. it's it's that that life cycle is changing and that disruption is occurring for a lot of mega trend reasons, technology. Um, globalization, major major trends, um, and uh, it's not just Amazon or the, or the four horsemen. Even if you think about you know Facebook, Apple, yeah. etc., or, or Fang. If you include Netflix, etc., Google, um, but uh, they are the drivers in many ways. They're the chief beneficiaries of, mm-hmm. of these these mega changes and this technologization and and liberation, if you will, of of consumers um, mm-hmm. who can now move much faster. But um, because of that. You know, being this age of disruption as as an incumbent um, who who believes in um, in a mission to bring books and nourish the love of, of reading uh, across the world as we connect authors and readers to increase human knowledge and hum- unlocking potential, which is part of the Penguin Random House mission, which, yeah. again, when I worked for the Global CEO, I helped write. While yeah. we were doing the branding project, it yeah. wasn't just about the colors and the logo. It was about what we mean in the 21st century. Um, so n- n- disruption from without – yeah. Necessitates transformation from within for the, yeah. for 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 these organizations. If you're going to be meaningful, yeah. if you're going to have a meaning for people, and it's not just about dollars and cents, it's not just about competitive position. It's really about about what you mean at, at this much greater level for society, mm-hmm. um, which we take exceedingly important as as purveyors of knowledge and and inspiration and and creativity. Um, so. So what does that mean in terms of what companies need to do? There's there's these new there's new skill sets that you need to to, to think about. And and uh, our dean Jeff Garrett was talking about it yesterday in terms yeah. of what Wharton's doing to create a big data data center to look at um you know to to look at how we do data analytics and finance differently. For for us, as I mentioned, it's it's Lean Enterprise. Eric Reese, who's one of a Penguin Random House authors, obviously with Lean Startup, uh, teaches some other school somewhere, but uh, (laughs) but still has some good ideas. Applying those as an entrepreneur, applying those into being able to fast MVP. Uh, concepts, etc., yeah. and then also uh, human-centered design concepts, yeah. which emanate both from you know the Stanford D School as well as uh, practitioners like IDEO and others. were are sort of taking yeah. the best of that and applying it into this uh, to support this. You know, as as Wharton Professor Peter Fader uh, talks about moving from a product centric co- product centric company to a consumer centric company. So, um, so, so that um, you know, uh, that sort of for me, there's a there's a great Shaolin proverb that hmm. I'll you know, uh, I'll mention here because I published a book about this once. Yeah. So uh, tying it back to my my days in pre Wharton as an editor, um, there's a Shaolin that's saying that says. Um, Take big problems and make them little problems. Yeah. Take little problems and make them no problems. When little problems become big problems, fist, sword, spear. Yeah. And trying to assess whether you're in this. Hey, is this a little problem? Yeah. Or is this a big problem? Like, what's your taxonomy? And then when that little problem of you know, say a company like Amazon, which is a small entrant in 1995, and we were the had the gift of disruption to. to the book space was the first one that it disrupted, yeah, and became this disruption engine for you know the entire unlocking new value and an amazing company, you know, one of the, the the great companies of the twenty first century. But with, within its wake, creating all this change for us as a company, like how do we then step up our game? What is fist, sword, spear to respond to that? And yeah. that's where you know again the third leg of this this conversation is this innovation leadership. Yeah. So and that's I think that's the X factor that connects. How to be going from the disrupted to to become a, not a disruptor per se yourself, um, but really a, a transformation uh, yeah, moment for yeah. your company, and that's and that involves. It's not just you know for traditional media businesses changing from B to B to C yeah. to, to 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 D to C per se. That's it's it's more than that. There's an entire ecosystem. To think about yeah. you have to have a gestalt about both what your meaning is as well as how you interact with it, um, yeah. and that's where. You know, it's it's technology plus this new customer view. And for us, you know, customers aren't just Barnes & Noble or Amazon. Yeah. We really need to think about the consumer, that lifetime value for that, that individual consumer, and using those principles that we talked about to be able to create these things to understand those consumers better so we can work better with the entire ecosystem, everybody from the author yeah. to the editor to the, the person who picks up a book in a store uh, or finds out about our books uh, online. And yeah. that's that 's the meta thing that we 're trying to do here in our part of the world, but I think every income business is challenged to rethink really from first principles, yeah. what their meaning is in a world where facebook Amazon Google you know Apple, and others are atomizing you know and 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 and, com- and competing in radically different ways and attracting consumers in very different ways and locking them into these new ecosystems that in the past, you know, we didn't have to really think about, you know, technology yeah. was separate from all of these, but in a technology is eating the world sort of, you know, overview, yeah. you have to really think about how you, what your business matters. And, and I'll say one last thing. And I you've about to say a question, but the one last thing is, you know, we often, you often hear like, well, you're not a technology company. Yeah, And I don't think that's the answer anymore. I think software is in the world, every company is a technology company yeah. to some extent. You have to have an approach. The question is, are you a good technology company? Do you use technology in the right way, yeah. at the right level, in the right places? Are you leveraging it properly or or not? Are you over-investing in the wrong places? Are you over-technologizing or sure. under-technologizing? Then you're a bad technology company. But that 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 strata that supports everything you have to do, data analytics – all of that is it has to be part of the lifeblood of your company, and that necessitates very different technological approach.
1: Absolutely. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to our special reunion radio edition of Mastering Innovation on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm Syka Choudhury, and I'm speaking with Brendan Cahill, founder and leader of Penguin Random House Labs. Let me unpack some of the things that you're talking about, right? Because so clearly when, if I interpret you correctly, when we look at customer experiences, you know, and reading or consuming content of various kinds, um, there's a role for the digital and the non-digital, physical and all that stuff. That's one thing. The second thing you told us about the principles that are driving your innovation lab. Um, And clearly disruption is happening across so many industries. but. You make it sound really easy, okay? (laughs) It's really hard to get a storied, established for a long time, extremely successful giant that dominated an industry to make these kind of changes. What are some of the challenges you faced and how did you overcome them?
0: Sure. Um, Those are significant. I, I mean, being able to create the understanding that there is this seismic change occurring, even though... Uh, our industry, the book publishing industry, is having rec- record profitability. You know, yeah. Double-digit, you know, EBIT margins are now become standard amongst the big five publishers ourselves and our and our traditional competitors. A lot of that is driven by the efficiencies that Amazon has in the marketplace. Yeah. They 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 have contributed to the death of a uh, of very inefficient sales channels like yeah. Borders, for example, and that's weeded that out. Amazon is the most efficient sales channel you can potentially imagine, and they're mm-hmm. always getting more and more efficient. However, some of those inefficiencies that you have that Amazon's weeding out also create opportunities for discovery for us. Mm -hmm. So even though some of our metrics improve, some of our other metrics of how many points that we can actually distribute to then become winnowed. So uh, aligning on looking at metrics that maybe weren't your traditional metrics around what success means for your company, how you manage that What those implications are as you game them out, if Amazon continues to take X amount of share each year, what does it mean in terms of how we interact with our other players? And as I Mm -hmm. said, we... We love Amazon. We work with them. We, we we strive to work with them better than we work with it with any other other partner. And yeah. we're, we're 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 you know I like so many other uh, people of my generation are in awe of what they've been able to achieve. Yeah. But there's an importance in, in diversification of, yeah. of and and it's not right for everybody. And and it's uh, another people wanted to to, dis- to discover books in different environments, and we want to help empower that discovery in any environment that consumers want, and perhaps. Environments that don't yet exist that might even be better for how people consume things in the physical world, as they encounter spaces and retail, as we were saying, ha- is changing so quickly. Yeah. Barbara Kahn talked about this at some length, and in, in terms of how customer experience is changing, and and you look at you know our, our friends from Warby Parker and others that like create an in store experience. Absolutely, where, hey, they are a d- digital native vertical brand. Why do they need a store? Well, you, you do to be able to create a an atmosphere that that creates discovery and allow you to tell a story about your brand and interact with your consumers and gather some of the data that you can't get you know, sitting separate miles away from them, actually being face to face with them just yields a lot of, of, of new um new data, both um both quantitative and qualitative data. And I think that's one of the reasons that my team uses standard standard design and pushes that so much is yeah. that the qualitative data informs so much about what the future can be that just purely looking at quantitative data you can't you can't bridge that imaginative gap between what is now and what can be.
1: But, you know, so, so I buy all that. But you're very positive. You're actually looking at disruption not only as, oh, it's challenging me in a negative way and I have to, you know, fear for all I have, let me protect, but you embrace the efficiency gains or the new experiences that you can get out of doing some things better or or uh, moving in a, in a direction that's more future-oriented. But I'm sure not everybody thinks like that in the company because they've got a lot to lose, maybe personally or pride, or they just believe that, look, this is the way we've been doing things. And so there's a lot of inertia there. How do you break that and get them to convert to that mindset that you seem to have embraced?
0: Well, there is a question is as, as to whether you need to convert everybody to that mindset. Great you know, point. Does the whole company move to that? And one of the one of the frameworks that I've uh, encountered over the last couple of years that I felt was really – was really great. Um, is uh, Martin Reeves's "Your Strategy Needs a Strategy," yeah, uh, which came out a couple of years ago. Uh, not published by Penguin Reino, so it's not a plug for my <laughs> company. It's written by a BCG consultant. Obviously, I'm an ex-BCG, so maybe it's a little bit. But uh, <laughs> um, and his original HB, H, Harvard Business Review article was actually written by a uh, BCG colleague of mine, Claire Love. So that's yeah. kind of how I happened to discover it because I, I know her. Um, but it's it's a really wonderful framework that talks about the different. Environments within the strategic uh, palette of the company, in terms of parts that are sort of the the classical Michael Porter parts of your company. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of that in our business in terms of what we do for a lot of our comparative advantage for supply chain and other things where scale really does matter mm-hmm. but when you look at other parts of our company where you where there is more unpredictability um in terms of the marketplace then you have the opportunity you know in the marketplace to to be adaptive mm-hmm. and change with what say Amazon is doing mm-hmm. or you have the opportunity to maybe shape the market and mm-hmm. help redefine it and as as the biggest player in uh, in the world of what we call uh, trade publishing or what what we sort of colloquially call commercial consumer publishing yeah. for books, um, we have both the opportunity and and I argue a responsibility to do so the The question around resourcing of that I yeah. think is it's an ongoing conversation within the company. How much do we resource the the new bets Absolutely. and sort of these new opportunities yeah. and that's that's always the question you know for the last twenty or so years since the alchemy of growth and some of those classics yeah, about it yeah. is like how do you how do you begin to really manage those different horizons of growth if you will, or yeah. those different sort of opportunities that portfolio uh, as you do it you know uh, Mature portfolio parts of your company, obviously, you can use Dogstar, et cetera. But when you're in that question mark area, how do you create those – how do you – how do you pump those up and build those just enough yeah. so that you can understand what the growth path is? And that's why, that's why creating a product team for me was really important, both using what I had done in, you know, from a product standpoint, having been a startup CEO, yeah. but also for the purpose of, of uh, an incumbent company to be able to do things light and fast and yeah. rapid prototyping where we actually talk to end consumers. That's really been, I feel, instrumental in being able to to get some cards on the table for us to be able to look at. The variety of things that where consumers are moving towards and what the possibilities are so the executive leadership of the company can really have a much more um, grounded conversation about, okay, this is not a leap of faith. Mm -hmm. This is not an imaginative possibility. We've seen analogies in other industries, so we're you know we, you know we're traditionally obviously book publishing is a very capital constrained business because so much of our our, of our capital goes towards our authors. Sure, that's where the the big sort of you know, venture capital, if you will, I'm putting that in the air quotes for those listening in, um, sort of bets are it's it's on the authors. If you're you know betting multiple million dollars on a John Grisham, you know that's 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 where the money goes for us to be bet. Whereas traditionally the Business part of our uh, of our business the the you know the, yes. sales operations all those things that are underneath it try to be very you know sort of Toyota you know mm-hmm. sort of you know, cost mm-hmm. conscious you know lean in that sort of sense um, how do you marry that Toyota part of the business with maybe this Tesla part of the business and that's where so over hits the road
1: so your approach sounds like you demonstrate a little bit of benefit in order to persuade people. And I like the point that you made about you don't need to convince everybody and not everybody needs to change, right? Um, So do you prototype things and convince people? Or is it that they bought your more conceptual arguments around how other industries do it and how we need to do it? What's it like in terms of the innovation culture and the people you work with, the top management?
0: Uh, It's a a work in progress, let's let's be honest. Um, It was very novel for us to... Create a team like this. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm nested within the operations team of the company because there really isn't a, a superstructure elsewhere for it. So that's yeah. that's definitely unusual when you're you know in executive meetings with people who are doing really important day to day like keep the lights on stuff work, and then yeah. all of a sudden they're pivoting to this conversation where I'm talking about prototypes that you know can make a market difference for us three five years out. Yeah, that's you know sometimes uh, a bit awkward of a fit, but at the same time. They uh, being involved in the day to day, they know how rapidly what they're seeing is changing, mm-hmm. and you know, well, and their teammates underneath them will ask, what can we do about it? We can present, we can present some some credible answers for what the possibilities are. And again, because we're we're not just a, a Skunkworks program, we're yeah. not just doing R and D for R and D's sake. We are are doing things that are very applied in terms yeah. of of of. The, uh, the consumers and, and having the, the, as my, as my boss or, or CEO likes to say, like, well, survey is the lowest form of data. And my counter <laughs> is, well, you know, dollars, I went to Wharton, dollars are the highest form of data. <laughs> so if we can get actual consumers to actually put actual money on the things that we're trying in these trials, that's the most important data point we can gather in terms of what these
1: opportunities are and, and in terms of what their meaning for the business can be going forward. Yeah, I like that the the direct tie to the bottom line. Now you mentioned the connection to Wharton. I want to come back to that. So, is there anything you did at Wharton which has prepared you particularly well in general in your career, but especially for what you're doing now and and your role at uh Penguin and Random House and uh of course, uh, I mean th- there was a, there was a variety of
0: things uh, I was involved Just because of some friends in my cohort, my first year, I sort of stumbled into the startup plan competition, Mm -hmm. wrote my first startup plan and joined the venture initiation program that we did sort of in in the second year. Little did I know that within a couple of years I'd actually be a startup CEO yeah and pitching to uh, successfully pitching both to uh, to uh, West Coast venture capital and raising double-digit millions as well as you know angels um, of various sizes mm-hmm. um, for for even an earlier stage company that, that I subsequently joined so that that was you know definitely part of it and again an unexpected part of my path. But um, but even more approximately, and, and as you well know, um, uh, <laughs> my second year, uh, I went from your corporate development class and said, like, hey, you know, there's been these rumors. You know, it was the heyday of private equity then in 2007 or so. There was rumors about my previous company, Penguin, which was then part of Pearson, um, that they were going to do a spinoff financed by private equity. So I said. You know, why don't I like take a semester and actually create like what a private equity pitch book would be for this yeah. and try to understand you know, alternative financing is going to be such an important part of the future of media, both VC and, and PE. Yeah. Uh, we, we, so we we're beginning to see that then. We're seeing it a lot more in spades now. Um, and uh, and I use that sort of as an example because of Penguin. I knew it so well as a chance to do it. Uh, you were my advisor, which was it was <laughs> wonderful to do. My, my daughter was born during the middle of that semester, so it was totally crazy. First child we had and you know, in the middle of everything. But uh, but it allowed me to connect with some of my you know, colleagues who had private equity backgrounds and had done corporate transformations to begin sort of comparing some of the ideas that I had had having been inside mm-hmm. Penguin about what, what it would be if you took it, you know, totally separated and, and into a, a rearranged company. Um, I created a report, which I then, you know, uh, got some feedback from some people in the industry on just sort of for fun. Mm-hmm. I wound up going to BCG, uh, obviously, subsequently, but but I kept copies of that and, you know, wound up joining a disruptive uh, ebook startup as, as first uh, – first, a non-founder employee, um, and mm-hmm. then became recruited, recruited to become a CEO of a, of a mobile app startup in the outdoor lifestyle space, which we pivoted towards a social media mm-hmm. um, movement. But then I was – when when that sort of didn't pan out, as you know, startups often don't, <laughs> yeah. uh, or at least in the way you expect, um, I was on the cusp of taking a job here in Philadelphia um, yeah. doing uh, strategic development under Sam Schwartz's group um, at, uh, at Comcast, uh, and a great group, really amazing stuff. Um, doing really interesting things in in the video space, which was very exciting for me. And some Wharton friends at Kant had, had actually um, helped me to 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 bridge that because there were some other Wharton people on those teams. Yeah. So uh, and I verbally accepted, was ready to. My family moved back to Philadelphia. We got our daughter into a local school here.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. And but before I signed on the dotted line, I was introduced by the then CEO of 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 Random House to the global CEO of of Random House. And on the day I met him. I said, you know, this this is crazy. I know we're just meeting here, <laughs> yeah, but you know, I wrote this project at Wharton five years ago, um, and in and, and he looked at it and it said, you know, uh, Penguin, you know, private equity, uh, private equity uh, proposal, and it was dated May 2008, my graduation date when I handed it in to you, which <laughs> like a week before I graduated, and uh, and Marcus Dole looked at it and he said, that's the month I started here as CEO, <laughs> and, and he's like, and now. We are merging with Penguin. <laughs> so uh, so all of a sudden this theoretical thing that we had done together you know, five years before, all of a sudden became a host of ideas that we could in fact implement in the real world looking at both what domestically Penguin could be as well as globally but now in the context of Penguin plus Random House. And the other funny anecdote, of course, I had worked at Penguin as I mentioned. Uh, my wife had been an editor at Random House for 13 years before she had our daughter, and then became a, a writer wow. slash ghostwriter. So I joked to, to Marcus that. We had effectuated the Penguin Random House merger years before. It was a gleam (laughs) in the eye of Bertelsmann and Pearson, um, which had a similar reaction to you. So we got to consummate that um, professionally uh, and bringing those two uh, great companies together. And now we have the capacity to do things that separately they could not have done. And my team is part of the answer of unlocking that potential for the company
1: fascinating story especially the nice uh, tie there at the end you know I think that's uh, you know you've clearly had a stellar career and, and served as a great role model for uh, UPenn and Wharton MBA. So thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Brendan. It's been great to see, see you, and thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. It's great to connect with you. Um, is there anywhere where people can follow uh, what you're doing, what your labs are doing, maybe Twitter or other places? We
0: do have Twitter accounts. We only post on it very occasionally because yeah. we sort of keep things secret until we spring them. But okay. uh, I'd say stay tuned
1: for the weeks to come. There's some big stuff cooking for this summer. Wow, that's certainly very intriguing. I shall stay tuned and pay attention. We need to take a short break now, but when we come back, I'll be joined by Brian Fields, Vice President of Things to Do at Groupon. I'm your host, Saikat Choudhury, and this is the special reunion radio edition of Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM 111. We'll be right back.